HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Kim Kessler, with the Resnick Program for Food Law and Policy at UCLA School of Law, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on Heritage Radio Network. Today, we will be talking with Robert Egger. He's the founder of LA Kitchen and DC Kitchen before that. He has been a leader in creating new solutions to some of our greatest food system challenges through making interesting and ambitious connections between jobs, health, and food that might otherwise go to waste. At LA Kitchen, they recover fresh fruit and vegetables to fuel a culinary arts job training program for men and women coming out of foster care and older men and women returning from incarceration. And I am thrilled to have Robert joining us today to talk about all of this. Welcome, Robert. Right on. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Very glad to have you. And I am lucky enough to have spent some time with you here in L.A. and through the L.A. Food Policy Council. And I'm excited to hear more about your own path to the work that you're doing. And that's how I well, want you, to start. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's funny. I love your lead-in on interesting and ambitious. That's a very good way to describe what I do, because I really do want to make it interesting. And frankly, I think times demand ambitious. But, uh, you know, I was, a, a, you know, just kind of a regular Joe in the 1980s. Uh, I ran nightclubs in Washington, D.C., uh, and that was my, real, my chosen field. I really wanted to open what I perceived would be the greatest nightclub in the world. But, um, you know, I couldn't help it. There is yeah, something about nightclubs in Washington, D.C. that is not how most of us picture Washington, D.C. Oh, well, actually, Washington, D.C. has a bit, always been a rich, interesting hotbed of music. Um, you know, interesting, you know, disco was invented there, interestingly enough. Um, and, you know, obviously we had an amazing hardcore punk rock scene, and you had Chuck Brown and Go-Go. Yeah. So it's always been an interesting town for that. So I wanted to be part of that. And frankly, I, growing up in the 60s, I saw the power of music, whether it was kind of the anthems of the civil rights movement or it was, the, you know, the kind of turned up to 11 volume of 
the Woodstock generation, or the subtle power of, Wood, of, of Motown. I, just, I knew that music had tremendous power to get people to think about things that were scary, um, uh, to open up their minds. And that's, that's kind of where I've always wanted to be, right? So, you, so that's what I was doing. Up, yeah, so you're doing that, and then somehow you end up as a social entrepreneur, nonprofit leader, and working in food. So how did that happen? Well, I went out one night to feed poor people. I mean, again, you know, you couldn't help but see the number of homeless people growing exponentially in the 1980s. And I ended up going out one night on a truck that, that was serving food that was purchased from a grocery store to men and women who were outside in the rain. We pulled up out from the State Department, uh, and there was this long line of people. And I just looked at that, and A, I kind of got a snootful of, of what is charity in America, which is about the redemption of the giver, not the liberation of the receiver. Here I was in the warm truck. And there were the people I was serving outside in the rain. But I also knew how much food the industry I worked in had thrown away. I mean, here I had spent my youth dreaming of, of opening this big nightclub. I'm a front of the man, front of the house man, but I had to understand how much, you know, the, econo- the economy of the back of the house. So I knew that my industry threw away tons of food. So I just proposed a very simple idea based on FedEx, that if you could go to the restaurants, the hotels, the hospitals, the universities, and get the food that they hated throwing away, you could bring it back to a central kitchen and do a cooking school. You could offer men and women a chance to come in out of the rain, and after they had gone through some programs, come in to be you know, part of a training program where you could learn while we fed the city, and then you could repay, if you will, the restaurants with entry-level people. Everybody would benefit. And City Harvest up in New York was the first program in America that started doing this with restaurant food. They would pick it up and drop it off. I just wanted to add this extra step. And again, go, go more towards the juggler of poverty and say, like, look, man, let's, let's shorten the line. Fundamentally, let's get people out of the rain. And so it was about, met with like, – what's City that? Har- did, you, did you learn about City Harvest and Food Rescue and then think, I think we can do – we can add this extra step? It was kind of a, a, a simultaneous thing. I mean, I was pondering this, and I just did a little bit of research and, and found out about City Harvest. Uh, and like I said, I, was, I, I think I was one of the few people in the business at the time or, or – com- contemplating this business, who had any food service background. So I just came along and said, hey, man, food service 101, you know, you can, you can feed more people a, you know, a simpler way, a more eco- economic way. But again, I also knew that the restaurant industry was going to explode. I mean, the Bureau of Labor Statistics was predicting a 35% increase in food service jobs. So I'm like, wow. You know, and again, I, having worked in restaurants, man, restaurants are the island of misfit toys. I mean, you can't be. You know, so, I mean, they, they, it wasn't a big stretch for me to see men and women who might have been out of prison, might have been addicts, you know, or whatever, having a, sec, a, a new opportunity there. So I proposed it, and no one would do it. I mean, I really tried to shop it around to charity saying, look, I'm just a volunteer, but here's a, a, a you know, more efficient way. But it was clear no one was going to do it, so I figured I'd get it going and then go back to running nightclubs, but here we are 27 years later. <laughs> and how did you do that? I mean, what did it look like at the, at the very beginning? How did you start? Well, you know, we opened up on George Bush Sr.'s inauguration day because it was an urban myth that you still hear. For, uh, it's, it's surprisingly deep-rooted that it's somewhat, it's somehow it's illegal. For the, the health department won't let restaurants donate that food. There's never, ever been a law that, that – in fact, every state had a law that actually incentivized that said, in fact, and look, unless it's a case of gross negligence or malicious intent, you won't be held liable if you give food in good faith to a charity. Um, but there was this deep-suited seat of things. So I figured if I could get the inauguration food, so I just called up. I mean, it was persistent. It took like five days of persistent calls. But I finally ended up with a person in charge of catering and said, look, 1,000 points of light, blah, 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 you know, big parties, leftover food. Why don't we do business? And, and it was f- funny how quickly they went for it. 
But, you know, every, what media outlet in the world could resist that? So this actually was very, very very much what I still do, which is saying, look, I can do really good business in my town, but if I leverage my town, I can influence what happens in other towns too. D.C. had this amazing role. So by getting the president to donate, not only did it benefit the opening of the D.C. Central Kitchen, but it smashed nationally this idea that it was somehow illegal. The president just did it. You can too. And so then every restaurant that you called, you could say, well, actually, the White House just donated. Yeah, you know what's funny though is it was. I, it, this is what's weird. It was more. I faced more reluctance from the charities I approached about the idea than I did from the restaurants. Restaurants hate throwing away. You know, again, they hate throwing away food. That's lost profit. So the fact that they could donate it, get a tax deduction, that we, that decreases their trash bills. It, it's morale for their staff. It's good PR for their customers, and of course, they get access to entry level people. So every, the restaurant tours were like, if you can make this work, this is good business for us. Uh, but it took off like a bat. I mean, it really it, it roared out of the box. I was kind of shocked um, because I had touched a nerve that was fascinating, which is that most Americans were were deeply deeply um, embarrassed by the amount of food we wasted. It was almost a universal sense that when I when I mentioned what what I was doing, I was trying to get to talk about job training because that's what excited me. But people wouldn't let go of this idea of like, oh my God, I always wondered what happened to all that food. Mm-hmm. So when the kitchen opened, I mean, I tapped right into that. And, of course, I also tapped into the beginning of cable television and the Internet and the food, the, you know, the kind of this new food programming on TV, and they were looking for stories. So here I was, you know, right below the Capitol training homeless men and women with food that was coming from glamorous parties the night before. But explain it even a little bit more, and then, and when we can talk about L.A. as well today, because I think, in part, it's such a closed-loop kind of system that it's hard to grasp everything that you're actually working on in this kind of system. So how, um, you know, where, so you, you would get the food, process yeah, I mean, it, and where would it go? Yeah, really quick, it would be, you know, we'd bring in, a, and, and still to this day, the D.C. Central Kitchen brings in about two tons of food every day that's donated. And it comes to a process, and then men and women who are enrolled in a 15-week job training program, and again, there's a long process to get into it. Um, you know, they set about working uh, for the first few hours of the day processing that, that, that food into meals. Now, we also have a significant amount of volunteers coming in because, as you know, over the last 20 years, volunteerism has exploded. Every kid has to do service. So we really created this great system where men and women in training are constantly it's, – it's their, their knowledge and their ability to pass that on. And their new role as teachers is reinforced every day because they guide volunteers. So together – trainees, volunteers, and staff, and staff oftentimes being men and women who are graduates and now employed by the D.C. Central Kitchen, will produce 6,000 meals, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And that saves D.C. and their agencies millions of dollars a year on food costs that then can be redirected towards the kind of services that head more men and women towards programs like the D.C. Central Kitchen or out of shelters into housing. So it was a beautiful system that has worked really efficiently. Uh, and has spurred about 60 other cities doing some variation of it. And so we're, we're going to hear about how, you know, what pulled you out to L.A., but it, it, sticking with, I guess, kind of the operations of how you do this, you know, tell us, like, what's happening at L.A. Kitchen today? Like, what things are, are people working on there today? Well, it's funny. Around the corner, we are, uh, you know, putting the, the finishing touches, if you will, on our 20,000-square-foot processing facility that, that we're building out here in Los Angeles. And we're, we're co-locating with a very, very uh, amazing new building called L.A. Prep. And there's 50 um, kitchens within this 60,000-square-foot space. We're one. We're 20,000-square-foot, but the other 40,000 
are smaller kitchens. It's a USDA-approved facility built in, in, in with the partnership of the health department here in L.A. But the idea is to really unleash the entrepreneurial spirit of L.A. food entrepreneurs. Now, the L.A. Kitchen, we've been piloting our job training program, this intergenerational approach. And this is deeply ingrained in what I want to do from now on, is this idea. We did it organically in D.C., but this idea of purposely putting old and young together, um, that really fascinates me. But, you know, as we speak, Class 3 of our new job training program here is in the middle of their 15-week job training program, in which we're co-locating currently with St. Vincent Meals on Wheels, which is the largest Meals on Wheels provider in Los Angeles, which is really important to, to, to get your head around the fact that here I'm coming out to Los Angeles to really be part of what I think is a, is a new revolution in food in how we feed the 80 million baby boomers. <clears throat> Yet, the very program that might perceive me as competition invited me in to share their kitchen. I mean, it's a beautiful uh, you know, sense of, of you know, how, kind of how the nonprofit sector can work. So we've been co-locating there while our kitchen is being built, and I, we're aiming to open the end of May, the beginning of June, and then begin a very ambitious you know, kind of ascent as we try and meet the need of what will be an explosion of older people who won't have enough money in the bank for the extra years that science is going to give them. So tell us about your graduating class. I know you said you're in you're you have you're in their third um, tranche of trainees, and you've had I know you had I think a class graduate last fall, and I guess a second class graduate since then. Who you know who are those people, and are there people that stick out in your memory, uh, either from the past or or your employees that you can remember, you know, maybe either for their success or because of challenges that they face. Oh, my goodness. I mean, you know, hundreds. I mean, in fact, I was just back in D.C., and I was stopped on the street by a graduate. A friend of mine just sent me a picture of somebody, one of the students at the D.C. Central Kitchen, studying on the subway yesterday. Mm -hmm. uh, but, yeah, it's the same story over and over, which is people who have been on a rough road. I mean, it's, it's younger men and women aging out of foster care and older men and women coming home from prison. Those are the two cohorts that we're working with. And I'm mesmerized by this idea of can older men and women help a younger group of people who statistically – are on the way to the street. You know, younger men and women aging out of foster care. Once you age out, society basically says, good luck. And so many of those young men and women end up taking the wrong turn. So our hope is that we can see older men and women saying, in effect, no, I won't let you make the same mistake I did. And that's already being borne out. So, you know, the first two classes were really, the first class was a little rough because we were trying to get our sense of who are the good partners in L.A. The second class really gelled. Now we've got a really good list of stellar partners who provide men and women who are really anxious and, and, and able to really take full advantage of what LA Kitchen's offering. We developed so a very new curriculum. means like a social service kind of organization right. that's working with uh, people. Yeah, and agencies that really understand the qualifications we're looking for and send us the people who are, again, really ready for this. So, um, you know, we've, we've developed a training program here that is probably about 70% traditional culinary kind of stuff. And, again, it's 15 weeks, so it's, it's knife cuts, it's food sanitation. But we've added a healthcare component because we know that the explosion of older people will offer a, a great opportunity for food service jobs within the healthcare system where people are not only getting paid to cook, but they're in, a, in, a, in an environment where they know what they're cooking matters. You know, they're not just working at a fast food joint downtown. They're, they know that somebody's health depends on what they produce. And that's a big part of what we tapped into in D.C. and we'll repeat here, is that most people in America, anywhere in the world, man, they want meaning to what they do. So, you know, that idea of, of people getting a job that not only pays well but makes them feel like it matters, that's a really cool gig. So, 
you know, we want to really try and get people on a path towards jobs that make them really happy, but also, you know, in an environment where they're producing really healthy food. And I think so, this whole aspect of, of um, food service, seeing it as a role that's really important and has a really critical, empowering aspect to it is something that, you know, in some pieces, some some components of food service has kind of been lost, like where people feel like their work is formulaic or it's, you know, reduced to reheating things. I mean, these are the kind of things you, you hear. So, I mean, that in and of itself is a kind of unique aspect of what you're doing. Yeah, and, you know, our goal out here, what I'm anticipating is, you know, I moved to L.A. because by, by locating here, I have access to, you know, literally hundreds of millions of pounds of the most beautiful produce in, it produced anywhere out of the Central Valley in Ventura County. And, you know, the model, one of the big steps we took in D.C. is, you know, historically we wait for the phone to ring and somebody to call and say, I'm donating food. Well, one of the big things that, uh, you know, the whole team there led by the current CEO, Mike Curtin, really started to explore was this idea of going out to farms and saying, look, we can wait a week until you call us, but why don't we buy it from you now for, in effect, you know, a dime on the dollar. And what we found is farmers saying, hallelujah, where have you been? Because I've got all this cosmetically imperfect stuff that's beautiful, but it just can't be sold retail because Americans won't buy anything that isn't perfect. And that opened up us the ability to do social enterprise. And in D.C., we partnered very early with the school system and the Obama administration to be a, a really tremendous pilot program for the idea of locally sourced cook-from-scratch meals, which allowed us to double the staff. Uh, and again, graduates of the program, now cooking for D.C. public schools, so by the time I left D.C., it was almost a $12 million a year social enterprise. It was earning almost 60% of its own money via contracts and catering. So L.A. is doing the same thing only in reverse. I'm coming out here to open a social business first that will hire lots of our graduates to produce very, very healthy meals for what is going to be a national and a global phenomenon, which is this, this explosion of people over 70 who are coming, um, short of an asteroid hitting the Earth. This is just demographic certainty. So, but what's fascinating about this, Kim, is that I'm predicting, and I think it's not, you know, big rocket science, that what you're going to see very soon is, an, is older people who will be very insistent on a healthier meal. They're going to want more plant-based. They're going to want um, even vegan all the way down to vegetarian. They're going to have a lot of different understanding. I mean, you have the Affordable Care Act, which is really going to see, you're going to see more and more doctors talking to their patients about their diet and even up to the point of, of, of prescribing fruits and vegetables. So here I come to a place where I can buy or, or, or have donated millions of pounds of beautiful product. And I can in turn both train people and employ people and then go to the city and say, every contract you've got that involves senior food, I want to replace the current contract, which is primarily processed food, and the profit leaves town and never comes back, and replace it with a model in which we buy local, we employ local, we produce healthier, more sustainable, more ethnically diverse meals for less money, and I reinvest profit over and over and over again. That's a so good I, piece of business. So I want to take a short break and come back and hear more about what those meals will look like. Great. Talk to you soon. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Kane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Kane5.com.
Kessler, and we're back on Heritage Radio Network with Eating Matters. I'm talking to Robert Egger, the founder of DC Central Kitchen and LA Kitchen, and we're hearing about the kinds of transformations he's anticipating in food service, and particularly food service for our growing and aging population. So, Robert, you were talking, you were just talking before the break about making meals more nutritious. Tell us what. You, what what that will look like, like the kinds of meals that you expect to be offering? Well, you know, again, because of the the tremendous amount of produce we're looking at, obviously, tilting gently towards more plant-based. You know, we've learned this in school food is you don't just come in and, in effect, become a nutritional imperialist where you tell people how to eat as much as you say, what do you like? And we'll make that healthier, and then we'll begin a journey together, you know, and you just gently start to introduce new ideas. I'm just suggesting our plan is, is almost a five- and ten-year arc in which we'll, we'll slowly start to evolve away from the tyranny of this plastic plate. This is what I think is really at the core of what I want to do, is if you look at in, in institutional food, you know, high schools, in, uh, prisons, airlines, hospitals, everything is put into this preformed plastic plate that says, you know, a meal in America looks like this. There's a piece of meat, and then there's a vegetable, a starch, and a protein. You know, kind of this, this everything revolves around the sun of protein. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's an artificial construct. And just say, in effect, look, I want to look at more of a bento box model that, in effect, distributes protein throughout the meal. So you move away from a three-ounce piece of processed meat, and you start to explore alternate proteins. You can still include... Uh, what I like to call cosmetic protein, you know, the small piece of flank steak, the the two pieces of shrimp for an older person who really still has that Jones for for flesh, I get it. But again, slowly start to move this over because, A, it's healthier, it's more sustainable, but ultimately, and this is really going to be important, there's 80 million people in America getting old. Every single morning, 10,000 people turn 69, and that's not going to stop for the next 20-some years. And what you're seeing now is a generation coming in, unlike the current older generation who were really, you know, they, they worked meticulously to pay off loans. They really didn't use credit cards. That's going to be replaced by a generation that really doesn't have any money in the bank. And so I think the challenge that I want to embrace here is how do you create a healthier, dynamic, you know, ethnically diverse meal for less money? Because I think that's the challenge that every state's going to face is how do we feed all of these older people on a budget? And, and I think this idea of, of still including a little bit of protein but erring on the side of, of a plant-based diet is going to be smart business for everybody. So you're obviously an optimistic person by nature. That's what you hear in your voice and as you talk about your work. But are there things in doing this and trying to bring people on board that do get you discouraged? And, and if so, how do you? what are the things that help you push past it? Well, you know, yeah. I mean, all my life I've been, you know, I've tried to keep pushing. And you've run into barriers that you know, I'll, I'll, some examples is I, I think that the uh, the land grant university and through it the extension system is one of the greatest things we have in the country. But it's still the extension system, even though I think they desperately want to evolve, they still struggle. You know, health departments still still tend to want to rate people on a brick and mortar construct, which means that food trucks, pop up restaurants. And this new economy is being stifled because health departments haven't adapted yet. They haven't figured out how do I let go and really reevaluate, you know, how do we keep our city safe, but at the same time unleash this new entrepreneurial energy. There's all kinds of examples. In terms of food safety. Yeah. Right. And so I'm looking at, you know, one of the big barriers, honestly, for any nonprofit social enterprise that goes in here is having the, the capital, the, the line of credit to float the, your debt long enough to get reimbursed by a city or a state. 
oftentimes contracts to do school food, senior meals, that kind of stuff. You have to be sitting sometimes on hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in bills that have to wait 60, 90, 120 days before you're reimbursed. So trying to get governments to be a little bit quicker in reimbursing so that they can incentivize programs just like L.A. Kitchen. I mean, again, think about this. You know, I'm doing business, and I'm saying to L.A., I'll keep every penny of this contract local. You know, nothing will escape, and I'll show you all the different layers, all the different value adds that I'm going to contribute to the, to the future of this city. You know, so all I want in return is for a partnership in which, you know, we don't go broke waiting to be reimbursed for the work we did. And I think this is a huge part of this new arc. But there's, there's plenty of things. I mean, like I said, we've raised a generation, two, three generations now, with this idea of the food pyramid is the way we're supposed to eat. Um, and, you know, and as I think we both know, industry has become wildly good at determining how to literally addict people to, you know, crunch, salt, sweet, all those kind of things. So, you know, trying to, to help people gently over this, this divide between what they want to eat and what they should eat. And I say should you know, based on really a physical, physiological approach. I mean, this is good for you. If you want to be a healthy, vibrant, dynamic, older American, you need to change the way you eat. That's just plain and simple. And we'll help you get there. You know, again, our goal isn't to come in and say, you know, no more yellow gravy on your mashed potatoes. It's just trying to find a nice middle ground in which people get the kind of robust flavor they want, but right. at the same time, the nutritional content their bodies need. We once talked on the show um, with some folks who work in child nutrition about um, how to bring people on board without being bossy, basically, to the thing, you know, without sounding bossy. And some of the advice was the the root of it is asking, not telling. And so I right think you said yeah. earlier about, you know, asking what do you like and kind of working from there. Um, well, you know, what's fun is we've been doing cooking demos. I mean, so the students go into senior centers and do cooking demos. And then you bring people in, and you, and you basically pass around all the herbs, all the things you're cooking with, smell. Smell yeah. it, isn't it great? What, you know, what are your favorite meals? What are your favorite food memories? I love asking people their food memories because everybody goes back to something their mom or their grandmother or grandfather made. But right. letting they people in and, and then, yeah, and then, but saying, which, okay, what are the three things we cooked today would you like to see on the menu next week? So then you're giving people a chance to participate, ask their opinion, and choose. And that's all anybody wants. Yeah, it's a lot of the same philosophies that people are, are trying in the child nutrition arena as well. Um, and, you know, people, people fuss about that, but I tell you, we saw kids in D.C. move, I, I think, pretty surprisingly quick into being very open about new foods. I mean, I think there's a lot of hyperbole around kids won't eat it, you know, you know this kind of pushback from the industry right. you're getting. But I think that's really counter to a lot of what, is, what, what those of us who've done it actually see. Yes, which is what my other guest, a child nutrition expert, said. They said, it's really overblown. Kids like healthy food. <laughs> well, no, what you're seeing is an industry pushing back hard because, you know, this is a massive industry we're talking about. So coming in, and if I may jump ahead a little bit, what's fascinating, and one of the reasons I'm also interested in aging in America is older people are the most reliable voters in America. And I think there's a real interesting key to food policy um, and the way older people and the boomers in particular vote, uh, I think there's a tremendous alliance between older older eaters and younger millennial eaters that is, I think, needs to be explored. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. I see that you've written about what the connections can be between boomers and millennials, and I felt a little overlooked as the generation in between there. But, you know, 
how are you thinking that, what is the interaction, what's missing so far in the conversation between boomers and millennials about in, in the nutrition context? Well, just so you know, Kim, I think, I think you Xers are the bridge builders. You know, I think the Xers have a <laughs> tremendous role to play in this. Because I know there's, uh, there's always been a little frustration by the Xers at this, this kind of gap. But no, yeah, I just think sudden, that, you know. All of a sudden the millennials are sucking up all the oxygen. <laughs> yeah. But no, I just think that there's, there's an activism uh, uh, that is oftentimes associated with youth. And there's a new activism that is powerfully linked to new media, you know, Twitter, Facebook, all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. So, and what, you're, and what you're seeing, I mean, far from the stereotype, and a lot of, by the way, a lot of what I'm interested in doing is challenging these, these stupid, you know, stereotypes of, of aging that we have. But one is that, you know, the kind of befuddled grandpa saying, you know, this darn iPhone, what do you do with it? What you're seeing is, is a surge. In fact, the largest growing number of people in the kind of new media sector are people over 50 pouring into Facebook, pouring. In fact, I think Facebook is actually investing heavily in this generation, becoming very, very fixated with communicating to their family. Mm -hmm. Um, But so what you're seeing now is, I think, really interesting cross-purposes. I know it's a little bit, as you pointed out, optimistic, but I have to believe that of those 10,000 people who look in the mirror every morning and see a 69-year-old, a huge bunch of them stop and look and think, you know, how did I get so lost? You know, how did I get so tricked into thinking if I just bought more stuff, I'd be happier? And I think what you're seeing is people who don't necessarily want to go back to the 60s, but people who want to belong to something bigger again. And this is what I think people have missed in the food movement, because in my opinion, the food movement is about a deeper hunger, that there's, there's a, people want to belong, and it's more about tribing up and being part of a movement than it is necessarily about what I'm, putting, what I'm having for dinner tonight. And I think this is where the food movement can really pivot now and say, look, this is, a, this is fundamentally about community again. It's, it's almost a reexamination of the agriculture, you know, that we left behind in the 1940s when we kind of, with the GI Bill, did this fantastic thing, which is said to an army of young men who came home from the war. First time ever in the history of the planet, an army came home and didn't go back to the farm, you know. So this, this idea, that's when we kind of left that agriculture, and we started into more industrial space-age farming. You know, and I think right now is a, is a very important time to stop and say, let's really reexamine. You know, what, what, what did we lose? What did we gain? And, and what's important to maybe reexplore? So to me, I'm more interested in the power of food to bring people together and build community than I am necessarily in, you know, just the, the idea of, you know, what I'm having for dinner tonight. So we're just about out of time, unfortunately, but I always like to ask people if I have a chance, what do you eat and how has your work in food informed and shaped it? Well, you know, it's funny. At my age, I have a choice. I can I can cut back on tequila or meat, and it ain't going to be tequila. So I'm trying I'm trying very hard in my older age. Uh, I'm 56 now to really cut back on the meat consumption. I think it's just again I think I'm my own best customer, and I got to practice what I, what I preach. So I'm looking to really arc more towards a plant based diet in my own life, with Great. agave being my favorite. <laughs> Great, I share your enthusiasm for tequila. Um, So thank you so much, Robert. That's Robert Egger of L.A. Kitchen, and uh, we really enjoyed hearing about your work in the past and your work in the future. Great, and I really appreciate working with you, Kim. I mean, you've done powerful work, and it's a pleasure to be your friend. Really fun to have you on today, and that brings us to the close of this episode of Eating Matters. I want to thank Tim Archer, my husband, for our show music, and our assistant producer, Talia Ralph and all our sponsors. The show is available as a podcast at iTunes and Stitcher and here on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Kim Kessler, and thank you for listening.
Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. And talk to God.